This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Our guest for today is Dr. Mark Wayne, who is the Director of Application Technology and Engineering from Tensar, a division of CMC. We're going to explore the industry of geosynthetics. We're going to talk about research. We're going to talk about application. And we're going to hear from Dr. Wayne, who's an expert in geotechnical engineering, but also in geosynthetic engineering. And we're going to talk about his background, his involvement, especially as it relates to the standards and the development of standards and the evolution of standards as it relates to geosynthetics and their applications to geotechnical engineering and other types of engineering. We're also going to talk about his relationship to organizations such as ASTM and also ISO and how these standards were established and how they've evolved. We're also going to talk quite a bit about full-scale testing and the relationship that it has in industry standards, developing them and evolving them. We're also going to talk about the future evolution of geosynthetic standards. So good stuff. You don't want to miss this. So thanks for checking us out. I'm your host, Jared Green. I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get into this episode, we're going to hear a quick word for our sponsor for today's episode, that being Tensar, which is a division of CMC. Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs, reports, and product data can be generated for your design, and Training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. All right, Dr. Wayne, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing? Great. How are you, Gary? I'm good. I'm good. I was looking forward to this conversation. So, so glad you're here. And we want to just get right into it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background in geotechnical and geosynthetic engineering, and how did you get involved with the field of geosynthetics? That's a mouthful, but let's hear what you got to say. I was attending Drexel University in Philadelphia. And at the time, I was studying to, uh, learn about structural engineering and geotechnical engineering. Uh, one of the professors of geotechnical engineering was Dr. Robert Kerner. And um, when I had finished undergraduate, like many of us, I went out and I was looking for work. At that time, uh, there wasn't a lot of work. There was, the economy wasn't great. 
And I was just sitting there studying one day and, and Dr. Kerner came up to me and he said, look, I got this uh, manuscript here. I need you to go look at it. This is something new in the industry. Nobody's really put this all together yet, but I've kind of put it together in a book. It's just a manuscript. You got to bring it back. You got to look at it over the weekend and give me an answer on one day. And I'm like, oh, geez, no, no pressure here. So I take this thing home. It's got, you know, it's marked up. The editors uh, went through it, uh, marked up a lot of stuff. But at any rate, as I read this document, I was sitting there. I was like, my, this is amazing. This is using geosynthetics, which is basically polymers to construct geotextiles, uh, geogrids, geomembranes, composites, all sorts of things, is massive. And it encompasses all sorts of aspects of civil engineering. I kind of viewed it as the first person that was told, hey, we can take this piece of steel and stick it in concrete. And we can do something with that. Would you like to be involved with that? So, uh, you know, come Monday, I said, you know, hey, Dr. Kerner, you know, I'm on board, you know, at least for a master's. I'm not sure about after that, but uh, I'm definitely on board for this. So at that point, I embarked on work study with him where I was involved with all the testing, evaluation, helping uh, uh, develop documents, et cetera, for uh, geosynthetics. That's how I got my start. So that was in uh, 1987. And at that time, he was very big and and hence the lead into more things we'll talk about. Dr. Kerner was very big on standardizing test approaches, right? Because when we get involved with new materials, it's nice to have those new materials. But what people don't recognize is that ASTM, for example, why was the American Society for Testing Materials established? And it was established by the rail industry. Because at the time, they were having problems with the uh, breakage of the steel used for the rails. So they're like, we need to do something about this. We have a, need a consistent way to test these things. So that's I also got involved with testing standards, which is pretty exciting. Because without those, you know, an industry could go in the wrong direction, right? Initially, I'd have been a geotechnical engineer, but I am a geotechnical engineer. And I was the first uh, graduated geosynthetic engineer, right? So I was the first one because I got to read the manuscript. And uh, I liked what I saw. So I guess I was fortunate, right, that I had that opportunity. So that's how I got my start. And uh, I've been enjoying it ever since. I run our geo practice here in, in Philly. So I had the pleasure of talking with a lot of folks that have gone to Drexel. One of my partners, uh, former partners, he's since retired, uh, Dr. John McElroy. Yeah, he had a similar story of, you know, just passing by Dr. Kerner. And he like he's like, read this. And then and another good friend, uh, Dr. Archie Filshill. I know him very well. Error aggregates, right? So it's like, it's funny how late Dr. Kerner would say, you know, I need you to take a look at this. You got to let me know soon. But how could you say no to him, right? How could you say no to him? He had the power for sure. And he developed a lot of people that have, you know, been in industry for a long time, right? It's not like a short period. So yeah, he did a good job. So how do industry standards impact the design, the construction, and the maintenance of geosynthetic applications. So the important thing there is, as I was uh, working with uh, Dr. Kern in the laboratory, just imagine if you're taking a high-strand geotextile, there's nothing written down on how to test it. So I get, oh, you sit there like, oh, well, well, we need grips, right? We need something to hold this thing. Okay. And, you know, how much pressure do we need and how fast do we test it? Now, if I test it at a certain speed, somebody's going to test it at some other speed and our numbers are going to be totally different. So that strength of that material has to come from a consistent protocol, so to speak. And it's kind of interesting. One day, Kerner, you know, he was great with 
laying things down very simplistic. He said, I know all these standards have not been fully developed, but we're developing our own protocol. He said, so I don't want you to uh, tweak around with anything, right? In in other words, just do it the same way every time. He said, the biggest problem with people that, you know, are doing graduate studies is we think we have a better way, you know? I don't want the better way. I just want it done the same way. That's what an ASTM standard ends up being, right? It's a consistent way. And the person using it may say, why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they have that in there? Well, the beauty is within ASTM, you can revive the standards are meant to be revised. You'll notice they have years associated with them. So we have to review and revise them within eight years, right? So that people can, you know, there's newer testing techniques. We have new instrumentation now than the stuff we had in the old days, right? In the old days, we relied on looking at um, the gauge length that you're pulling to determine strain. And then they said, oh, we have linear voltage displacement transducers, you know, as LVDTs, and we can stick those on there. But now you're punching holes in there. You're trying to hold it. Now we have cameras, right? Now we literally have cameras that can take frame by frame and compute the strain. So we can get the strain. We have load cells to get the load. So there's a lot of engineering and technology that goes into testing and those numbers, so once we do, uh, um, that's why I'm heading down the path of just one thing right now, but if you do tensile strength, from that strength, we want to know how we're going to apply that in a wall, for example. If we're going to use the geosynthetics to hold up your wall, well, somebody would say, well, what is the ultimate strength? Well, if you run a test different than me, I can give you a number and you're going to give me a number. <laughs> oh, we like Jared's number. It's 25% higher. And his strings are lower. We love this. Let's say we're going to take his numbers over yours. So hence uh, standardization. And so interestingly, I've recently within the past 10 years been involved with ISO, which is the International Standards Organization. And they are the counterpart to ASTM, but they're now trying to work together when it comes to geosynthetics. So in ASTM, we have D35 and in ISO, we have TC221. There are committees within those um, organizations devoted to some discipline, right? So 221 is geosynthetics and D35 is geosynthetics. So it's interesting. ASTM has over 155 standards, which you say, wow. Well, you think about it. You got everything from, you know, geocomposites to geomembranes, geotextiles, geogrids, geopipes. And then one day, Archie's material may be in the mix. It's not necessarily in there or or could, in some cases, some of the things have gone down the path of D18. So D18 is for geotechnical testing, some of the stuff that um, you may be familiar with as well. That's why these things are important. Those values are used in design. So it's important. You're uniquely involved with ASTM and ISO. Can you shed some light on the role that these organizations play for the adoption of geosynthetic use and also establishment for industry standards as a whole? Like, What's the difference between the two? I guess the differences are just that ASTM uh, started out in the Americas and ISO started out in Europe. They like to handle the whole world. Now, the difference is that within ASTM, obviously anybody can become a member. Today, you can go online and you can sign up and become a member. ISO is a little different because within ISO, countries have representatives. So they have subject matter experts that are representatives that are assigned to work on ISO committees. So that's where the difference I think lies. I think there's a a little bit more openness with ASTM as far as becoming a member, but at the same time, ISO is trying to vet out the experts in the industry, so to speak, that know the most about the material. Not that 
anybody else can't sit on there, but it would make sense for you to sit on the committee if you didn't know much about what they were doing, right? So the voting is a bit different. There's a different voting protocol between the two, but in the end, they do develop standards that could be slightly different, but with time, since so the interesting thing, TC-221 wasn't created until the year 2000. D-35 was created in 1984. D-35 has been around a long time, kind of served as a little bit of a blueprint, right, for ISO with regard to geosynthetics. And a lot of the same people that are involved with ASTM are involved with ISO. And so right within ASTM, we have a group that gets together as well to kind of make sure we're part of ISO. So there's that continuity. But again, some of the standards could be different. And as you know, if you're looking at standards, someone may reference an ISO standard. So somebody would have to see, well, what is that standard? How does it compare? And that gets back to what I said earlier. In design, they, they're going to do their design predicated on the ISO standard. So if they're going to use an ASTM standard, they want to see what those differences are. So that's kind of important. How do ASTM and ISO collaborate with industry professionals and stakeholders to develop and update geosynthetic standards? So you handed on this a little bit when you talk about ASTM being updated every eight years, but what are your thoughts there? The collaboration is, uh, once again, developed around subject matter experts that want to be involved and other interested parties, right? So you may get into an industry, and I think these standards organizations are a great place to start and attend to listen about uh, what's going on with the different testing protocol. Especially if you're getting involved with the material, it's good to know how that material is being tested. The other interesting thing is that we work in an industry and we never know what sort of new standard we need. I mean, tensile testing is easy. But when you start getting to other things like geotextiles is a good example. At one point we said geotextiles can clog. Well, that's a point we didn't think. Well, we should think about that, right? If you used your filter for your coffee over and over again, it eventually clogged, right? But so they're like, well, okay, how do we prevent that? So what standards are needed for us to do testing so we have an idea of values we can use for design, to your point? Another big issue is how much water flow can pass across the plane of a geotextile, right? If you're using it for filtration, say a silt fence, you want to know if you don't have enough water passing across. So a silt fence would be used, the people see, I raised the point silt fences because it's something common to a lot of people that may watch this video. They'll see that during construction, you see these, they, to a lay person, they'll see a fabric put in vertically with stakes. Well, just imagine if you didn't have enough, if those materials did not retain the fine sediment, that would be a problem too. In a way, you're going to have segmental clogging occur until you need to replace those silt fences, right? But you also have to allow a certain amount of water to go through, which we've referred to as permittivity. So how much water will cross vertically across that plane uh, would be used as uh, permittivity. And those are all important values because when you end up selecting the material, you need to base it off of some sort of guidance as to what you need as an engineer. And the thing with geosynthetics is because there's so many different materials, it goes back to the function that the geosynthetic serves. So that's where another another good thing for ASTM and ISO is definitions. So definitions are developed by the industry to help people understand, well, what the heck is this permittivity mean? That's not a common term, right? What is the um, hydraulic conductivity of these materials, a geotechnical engineer would ask? They're all different properties that with time, 
a need will arise. So something may happen in the field, and then somebody says, well, wait a minute, we're just specifying that the material needs to be X, Y, and Z. We're missing something here. So what are we missing? That's where Kerner came in with the development of his textbooks. To uh, His old philosophy was design based on your function. And it's interesting because somebody, one time uh, a layperson, engineer, but I view a layperson in geotechnical and geosynthetics, asked the question saying, you know, why I got this table properties, yeah, ASTM, this and that, and the other thing, why do I need all these properties? And I said, well, that table is for a variety of functions. He's like, okay, now we're going down a whole new route. What is this functions? I said, let me make it easy. So the way I like to make it easy for people, something we all grew up with, and that is Velcro. When Velcro first came out, they were putting it on clothing. So within ASTM, what do you think they did there? They were doing wash and wear tests. Well, what happens when you wash this? What is its shrinkage properties? What is it? How well? But then wait a minute. We took Velcro and we're using it to put paintings on a wall. The water shrink test doesn't matter. You know, the wash and wear doesn't matter. You know, what matters is how much weight can that thing hold in the wall reliably so a painting doesn't come off the wall and hurt somebody. You can end up having this whole list of results for different properties, but you may not need all those properties if you're just using the material, for example, to separate other materials. And separation may need a set of properties. Reinforcement will need a set of properties, a filtration, drainage. And if it's a geomembrane, right, we want to make sure that it doesn't have any holes in it. So we want to make sure what happens with the geomembrane, some of the tests that you can do for that. So the important thing here is that as we went through time, we added on to all these standards. So we didn't, obviously, we got to 155, but we went through a lot of time and effort and developing one standard at a time. You have to vote on these, right? You have a sub main committee that can continually votes on these and people put their comments and you revise it till it gets to a form that is acceptable to everyone. I hope that is a good explanation of the importance. It is, and I appreciate the Velcro example because I can remember as a young engineer checking shop drawings or something like that. And you go to the table and it's like, if I only need these two values, then why do I have all these, right? Because there's a history issues for many different things. That's a very good way to explain that. And to that point, in this one case, the guy said that why don't we mention what we're going to be using these materials for so that people understand that. So we did, we put a footnote in, kind of explained, here's how they're to be used. That was great for his point to say, look, yeah, I mean, somebody's got to look at this thing and say, God, I need all these properties. Otherwise, I can't use this, right? I mean, this is confusing because sometimes there would be a property and there would be no, it would just be a DAC because you didn't need it. You didn't need that property. But he's saying, but so why are we listing it? Well, we're listing. So why are we listing it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're listing the whole bevy of things that we want to test it for. So that's why. Well, in your opinion, what are some of the key challenges in creating? and implementing geosynthetic standards. Now, how do you address these challenges? I guess the biggest uh, challenge is, is you have to work with the stakeholders who are most interested in utilizing geosynthetics in the first place. So a good example, you made the point about how these get implemented. So you have organizations like AASHTO, uh, American Association of State Transportation Officials. You have uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, you have um, NTPP, you have all these different acronyms floating around, but let's just take one, for example. So AASHTO wants to use these materials, but they're cautious. They're trying to figure out, well, if I'm going to use these materials to build this wall, 
and or this abutment that's going to hold up this bridge, I need to better understand how do I design with these materials? Who do I bring into the discussion to make sure not only that we use the right materials, but we're also making sure that when our people want it, like you said, you go to your shop drawings, they're calling out a specific material and it has specific stated materials because you're going to have a purchasing agent that's going to say, hey, this, you know, we're building this wall and in this specification, it's calling for these values and I need those values and then I'm going to go find a product to match those values. That's a whole chain of events that has to start at someone having the interest to say, yes, we can use these materials to build a wall. That was a big thing in the 80s, like trying to figure it out. But we need to get the right people together and make sure that we can reliably build a wall based on a certain system, a certain block, a certain panel, a certain geosynthetic. And interestingly enough, Ashto said, well, we're going to commit to establishing a panel. They called it high tech. So for example, high tech put together a group of people on the, the DOT side and the, the federal side and the state side to um, evaluate different systems used for building walls. Because that was to them, it's a, it's a safety issue if it's not done properly. And then they were coming together and saying, okay, you as the manufacturer supply to us all the information. And that's the way, like you said, the product specification sheet is the way the materials produced and the product test results. Uh, in accordance with ASTM and any modifications you may do, as well as all the design that goes into incorporating those materials. And from there, they developed specific system documentation at in the early stages because there wasn't nothing available, right? There was no other place. Other, you can go to Dr. Carter's book, but they want something more formal where their people had an idea of what is this kind of checklist that I can go through? I need a checklist because as you say, there's a lot of things here. We may not need all these values, but I need to know which ones are important and how do I determine, say I have a geogrid, what is the long-term design strength I can reliably use when I actually do my analysis? Because that's the number I put in there. And if that number's wrong, then that just means that my factors of safety are not correct or it's totally unsafe, the process that I'm following. So implementation came through stakeholders, that were very interested in using these materials. And they came from a lot of different places. I reference Ashto as one of them. Most people recognize BMPs, a best manual practice for erosion and sediment control and land development. So when you're doing land development, those BMPs, for example, there's a massive section in there on all sorts of geosynthetics because geosynthetics are used throughout land development, as an example. So each one of those things had to be established. And M288 is another one. M288 was an initial guidance document on how to use geosynthetics in practice. And so, like you said, these things built upon themselves. But in those early days, it was tough because we would all get in a room and we would fight, right? Everybody's got their own, you know, these are new materials. And, you know, my material does a good example in geosynthetics. It was interesting because as we were fighting, I forget who brought it up, but somebody said, well, wait a minute. These materials have different amount of strain, right? The non-woven geotextiles, when you pull them, their strain's always going to be greater than 50% at failure. And the fabrics that are woven or high strength, their strain of failure is always going to be less than 50%, right? Let's start down that path, right? Let's stop beating our heads over what numbers we use because what people started to do is say, oh no, just say only a woven material can be used. Well, wait a minute, then you're limiting other possibilities. 
it was interesting. We found our way back to the strain at failure as a qualifier to start and uh, build a set of tables because people would ask me later, well, how do I understand how to read this? Well, I sent the affirmation greater than 50%. You'll see notes. A lot of people don't read all the notes. You know, there's notes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A lot of times people just look at the table. They're like, oh my God, you got to look at the notes. The notes will help you down a little bit of a path, but you can imagine you get 50 people in a room, things don't go so well. There was a phrase that Kerner used to be used, which again is, is a good one. He said, we always start off with the best intentions in developing a standard. The idea is to develop a stallion, racehorse. And what ends up happening when we get done is we create a camel because we keep pushing and pushing. And now we got the humps forming. It may not be the same animal, but we got it through the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you can still ride him and he can take in a lot of water, right? Yeah. But that's true, right? You start off, you have these grandiose ideas like, no, it should be this way. Well, that's your opinion. It's not that, you know, this has to be a consensus document. And that word consensus, all you know, is there's a lot to it. A lot of negotiating and bargaining and grief, aggravation. Think every psychological indicator you go through as you're working on these standards. Yep, it is probably a cycle. You go through a different, you know. <laughs> At my age, I'm like, look, we just have to come to some reasonable understanding. I guess it helps for me to be a better negotiator by being involved with the development of these standards. Because we all, in the end, we want the same thing, right? We want to be able to use the product. If we continue to delay something in some senses, then it's, your product's not going to get used because there's not a way to test it. Or if there's not a test, like you said, for an engineer to rest their hat on and say, okay, ASTM has this protocol for tensile strength of geogrids, for tensile strength of geotextiles. You'll believe this, even storage and handling. Who would think, right? Storage and handling of the material. That didn't come along till much later. You think that would be earlier, but it didn't come till much later till people are, and usually it comes through manufacturers get all thousands of phone calls. Well, how do I do this? How do I start? And then, you know, you send your guidance and you do this. It's a lot easier to just say, hey, here's the ASTM standard. It works for me. It works for everybody else. Because then they'll say, well, that's one manufacturer's way of doing it, right? The other manufacturer's got a different way of doing it, right? That's why it's hard to develop a standard because each person initially has their own way that they think is best and you have to come together kind of as a group and kind of get something that it's workable. Is the camel. Got to be the camel. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's got to be the camel. So that's how it works. You head to that, uh, you know, testing. So let's talk about full-scale testing. Full-scale test is it's got to be crucial for assessing geosynthetic performance. Can you explain the relationship between full-scale tests and also the development of these industry standards? Industry standards, although they give us good guidance as, as a starting point, they don't tell us how in the end it's going to perform. So in the beginning, we developed the standards and people, the first question was how much strength is good enough, right, for this? Or are we putting materials that are so strong that we're you know, you're wasting a lot of material in a sense that you don't need to have something that strong. Or if you have something that's strong, maybe you need less of that, right? That goes to the economy of construction. The interesting part about this whole thing is that when you're trying to find out how the material is going to be a benefit, let's give an example. So for highways. So when we're building a highway, we'll know that we'll take gravel or we'll take, they call we refer to it as base course material and place it on the ground. Well, in the ideal cases, the ground is firm. You're starting with a firm ground. But as we all know, when it rains, it's not so firm anymore, right? 
So when geosynthetics came along, the initial thing was separation. Geotextiles, first and foremost, easy to mentally, you know, take a geotextile, take your shirt, lay it on the ground, throw some stone on. Stone's not going to go through the shirt. Simple way to saying that. So you have separation function. And so how do we quantify the degree of separation? There's no easy way unless you do full-scale testing. And how do we decide on if, that, if you have a weak foundation, how much stone do you need on top of that weak foundation along with asphalt to give you the proper amount of traffic that you're expecting? So the idea of having geosynthetics in roads is to extend the life of the road. That's one approach. Or you could balance the design, right? You could balance the design in such a way that you save on materials, save on cost. And the bigger part that geosynthetics brings to roads is that just imagine if instead of putting 12 inches of base material, you only need to put six. Just imagine all the savings in trucks and fuel and water, the whole nine yards. In fact, Tensar has done a great job with, with software, online software that can calculate all that for you. So you'd say, okay, well, we have test standards to test the materials that we're putting in the ground, but what do those correlate to? So in a sense, when we don't know how an easy way, in walls, it's a little bit simpler, right? We have fundamental principles for wall design that we've used in the past, but for roads, we use protocols that are based on empirical tests to start with. Right now, Ashto is moving more toward mechanistic empirical. Right now, a lot of states may still even use empirical. What that means, what is empirical? So empirical design is we go out, we build some full-scale sections, we traffic those, and we say, oh, that we back into how did that work? It worked very well. It got this number of passes on top of it. And what people don't know, like, for example, a good term is easels, right? Equivalent single axle loads. We hear it all the time. What is one easel? Well, one easel is, you know, 5,000 vehicles passing on something, right? But for trucks, you know, you get an 18-wheeler, that's several easels running on a road. Hence, that's why the structure to our roads when we deal with all the Amazon trucks is a lot higher than it used to be with people just driving our cars into a neighborhood. As a good example, so neighborhoods, the damage caused is excessive. So the only way to get really right now at the current time, we're instrumenting full-scale sections to then kind of figure out mechanistically by mechanistic, what we mean is now we can actually individually test the materials, test the asphalt, test the aggregate, test the geosynthetic. What are the mechanistic values, design values we can use to better find out how to make an economical design, so to speak? So the, the importance of the full-scale testing is to prove to ourselves that the approach we're taking is sound and not giving us information that's misleading. So full scale can be a lot of ways. In the beginning, when we were using um, geosynthetics for bridges, for example, there were a number of people that actually built large sections. The FHWA, for example, built large sections and loaded them up, just loaded them, let them sit there and monitor, put gauges and everything else on these things to find out how they are performing. That's uh, something known as GRS IBS. And that's a system that's used, an economical system that can be used for the development of the buttons for small bridges. For me, I think when we don't have a clear mechanistic approach for design, we need these full-scale studies. And we also need the full-scale studies anytime we develop a new material. We want to test it in the full-scale to see if it's performing as well as we say it's going to perform. So that's where full-scale testing comes in. 
And it could be for a lot of different applications, right? Landfills and other things where you can do this full-scale testing to really determine the benefits of these materials. When we talk about the methodologies and the protocols used for full-scale testing geosynthetics, how did the test contribute to ensuring the reliability and the durability of geosynthetic materials? You hinted at this a little bit. Yeah, I didn't get specifically into the fact. So if we were doing a rolling wheel test, we would refer to that as accelerated pavement testing. It was a good example. So we're doing a rolling wheel test. If we take four inches of asphalt and six inches of base and a subgrade, fairly firm subgrade uh, that they would use in design would be about a six CBR. If we do that and we perform those tests, we would come up with a certain amount of passes of that wheel that would give us a certain deformation of that asphalt. And in many cases, we would take those tests up to one inch of deformation, right? To give us a comparative. And so at that one inch, if you were then to say, well, wait a minute, build the section with the geogrid or a geotextile or something in that cross section, the first would have been a control. So if the control gave you 1 million easels and it reached a certain level of deformation, and the one with the geosynthetic gave you 2 million, so you have a factor of two, right? That you could say reliably, I'm able to put twice as much traffic on those equivalent pavement sections so that with the geogrid, I'm getting that. So that is, some people would refer to as a traffic improvement factor. You could also go into the AASHTO basic equation and put some adjustments in there to take that into account. That's what's done at the current time. But in, in mechanistic, it, it gets into a little differently. In mechanistic analysis, we'll be looking at deformation of the entire system and how those react within each other. We still don't, to this day, have a pure uh, mechanistic addition through the incorporation of uh, the geosynthetics into pavements. Although papers I've been involved, I've written a paper on, on an approach to doing such a thing. Again, going to the original point we said earlier, you need adoption. So you need people to bring it to a certain point where we all agree that, yeah, the paper Mark wrote about this adoption of this approach for mechanistic empirical design with the geosynthetics is good and we, we should use this, right? At the time, what people had said is we use cases, right? We use several different cases. We use uh, full-scale laboratory testing or control testing, I like to refer to it as that, and actual field testing where you monitor the roads right? So you have field and laboratory. You imagine the other thing where we're dealing with civil systems is the environment plays a big role. So a pavement in Florida is going to respond totally different than a pavement in Alaska. So, and the asphalt and everything else they use is going to be different. They, were, they have temperature zones throughout the world and they, they use those in mechanistic empirical. They look at temperature zones for the, to look at the behavior, which is interesting, right? Because before we just had basic equations. Everybody was using the same basic equation that we said, wait a minute, there are other conditions we need to now fold into this analysis. And temperature is huge. I mean, this summer when it get, everything gets hot again, we're going to see how roads start failing, right? Because of expansion and contraction. So this is a good case for what we said earlier. You know, somebody along the way is going to go into ASTM and ISO and say, hey, we may need another test to test these materials to ensure ourselves they're a bit more resistant to the environment within these regions, right? So as a result of climate change, we're going to have to come up with new standards or we're going to have to adjust the existing standards to, and the way that can be done is 
you can have a method A and a method B or a method C within a standard to accommodate these other things. And hence the reason you want to revise these standards every so many years. It's not a static situation, right? And there's always new materials to try to address the problems that we face. And honestly, it sounds like great opportunity for those that might be listening, working on a master's and say, I want to do a PhD, but I don't have anything to study, right? There's a lot of opportunity here. And the other beautiful thing is ASTM is a minimal fee per year. And what that fee gives you is access. You can pick one volume or one area of interest. You can have access to all those standards as part of your membership. That's rare. Usually ISO, you got to pay for each one of these. If you go online, you'll find out if you're trying. Somebody will, usually everybody comes to me like, hey, I can't find a standard. What do I do? <laughs> and I recommend to them, you know, in certain industries, I'm like, hey, become a member. As soon as you sign up, you'll have access to the electronic standards within a certain industry. Say, for example, D35, each year I, when I sign up, I have access to every one of those standards, right? So it'll print your name on If you try to print it, it's going to print your name on each one. That's fine. But the point is, at least you have access to it and you can read it. I find that the STM did a really good job with that as far as that goes. And can you provide some examples of projects where adherence to the standards made a significant difference? Anything pop out at you? The one thing that we were talking earlier, which is standards dealing with handling and storage. We didn't have anything. The DOTs were actually coming back and, you know, to us as manufacturers and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we purchased this stuff in June, but my God, we're not using it until October and it's sitting outside the sunlight. But what's the protocol here? You know, what do we use? Well, now normally as a manufacturer, we'll be sending our verbiage as to what we think they could do based on our material. And this is where a standard was very important because they're like, okay, yeah, you're the manufacturer. Okay, that's fine. You can say whatever you want, but what is the consensus opinion on handling and storage? So all these geosynthetics we're getting at our site, maybe not, you know, you know how it is. Do I need to go to Mark for geogrids? Do I need to go to Jared for geotextiles? Now I need to go to this other guy for geopipe. What the heck? I mean, it's just too much work, right? Where can I go to find a standard that'll give me guidance for all these materials? You know, erosion control materials have their own way that for storage and handling to make sure that there's consistency. So some of the materials you imagine we need to have an outer wrap on. Other materials we don't need to have an outer wrap. Some of them come on pallets. Some of them come in different ways. Some of them come with a core. Without having a guidance document that is readily available, it makes it difficult for the end user right? To use the material reliably. And I guess the other thing that's pencil testing, a good example, right? So if somebody takes a geo grid and puts it in the wrong direction, somebody, you know, say, hey, there's a standard explains to you. We run the test. Here's the strength in these directions. And then you'll still get people coming back. Well, isn't that enough strength? You know, they put the material in the wrong way. It wasn't put in that way. So at least we have documents saying, no, you need this strength. <clears throat> Test it in that direction shows you that it needs to be put down in that direction, right? So I think a lot of things come when you're dealing with materials, you're right. The first guy going back to the Velcro, the first guy said, hey, what if I just throw a painting up on the wall? This stuff's pretty good. No different, right? There's different different things that people are trying to do. And I think without the standards, it makes it difficult. Or for the individual, it's fine. They're, they're going to go off and do whatever we call it MacGyver, right? You remember it got MacGyver? Yeah. You're going to MacGyver <laughs> yeah. that situation, right? That was like a phrase. It's like, it, it works until it doesn't, right? The big painting is like, oh, well, we know it doesn't work for that one, right? But was it like 
repetitive use was it the first time so no it makes a lot of sense that's pretty much it we have rapid advancements in technology and in materials so with that do you see geosynthetic standards evolving in the future and if so what are some emerging trends or innovations that might shape the industry's standards landscape one area as far as standards go because in standards we also are developing standards for those full-scale tests if you're going to run a full-scale test and i'm going to run a full-scale test what do we need to do we're actually working on those as we speak so you're talking about the evolution we are uh, to the evolution you know and it started in different areas for example starting erosion control first you imagine why it became so important is because contractors um, had to pay money for bonds on projects to make sure that they didn't have disasters occur from erosion, right? If that if the water washes out too much soil, you can have walls fall over, you can have roads fall apart. So the evolution of these are toward developing ASTM and ISO standards for performance. And also, as I said earlier, with the change in our environmental conditions, I see that there are going to be a need to modify and adjust the standards to accommodate um, what's happening in the world around us. Because it's again, we're not living in a static situation either. I think the bigger area is going to be in, I guess you would say, working temperature use of materials. So, you know, think about it. All the, A lot of these standards are conducted at room temperature conditions. You know, when we do the creep, a polymer's creep. If you put a polymer under load, it'll move under load. That's referred to as creep. Uh, just imagine now that some of these temperatures we're seeing, right? 110 120 degrees. For example, when we did work in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and places like that, imagine the temperatures. The, the concern is, we know you do these temperature tests on the polymer, but what happens at the face of the wall where the temperatures are the hottest? Because as the material heats up, I own a Tesla, so I get I have the opportunity to see what the temperature is inside my car. And the temperatures are excessive. So imagine even inside a car, when you're talking about temperatures that could be 178 degrees, those polymers and whatever's inside that car needs to withstand that. And as we all know, back in the day, they didn't necessarily do it. We had cracked seats. You know, you get, you went to sit in your car and you're like, wow, what was that noise? I just cracked my... So they evolved, right? So their protocol and their standards had to incorporate uh, these effects. So I guess what I'm saying, the standard conditions we were used to are changing over time. And we're also getting more flooding events. So what are we doing as far as when our roads become inundated is a good example. So I think uh, an area where ASTM uh, can evolve, it is, I don't think they get as much into this, but there are more people starting to do smart systems. At Tensar, we're involved with what are called smart pebbles. So we can take a, a small device that has a gyroscope inside of it, and we can see how it moves, whether it's under a road, in a wall, wherever it is, developing smart devices to go into the systems we rely on every day. Wouldn't it be much better to know, for example, and people have heard this, I mean, you may or may not have heard about uh, spring thaw and keeping heavy vehicles off of roads. But in the north, there's a big thing when they go through the spring thaw, they have to reroute all the trucks. They can't have them on certain roads because they're worried about the damage from those vehicles on the roads. But if we had smart sensors built right into the road itself, whether the road was flooded, whether it was this case of spring thaw, any of those conditions we could kind of predict in the beginning to help alert people. And we could also, at the same time, let people know, hey, you can get back out on the road earlier. 
that normally would be the case. By the way, in the northern tier of the U.S., they basically will just say, oh, no, we're closed for two months. You can't drive on two months. I mean, like they just put a limit. Like, I think there's some dartboard they just throw a dart at, you know. And this year it's two months, you know. Like, I don't know how they do that. But I think with smart instruments, uh, there's going to be standards. So ASTM is going to have to evolve into looking at the standards, right? Because then somebody says, hey, if I buy this off-the-shelf instrument, am I getting the same uh, plus or minus tolerances as something else, right? So what are the tolerances of the instrument? Can I assure myself that it's going to be a reliable reading of what I'm looking for? Something as simple as a pressure cell. They all have different ranges. They're different sizes, but they have different ranges for different uses, whether I'm going to stick it under a train or I'm going to stick it under a highway or I'm going to stick it in a parking lot. There are different needs associated with those. The standards will continually evolve to uh, take in the needs of the subject matter experts that are working on those standards because they're the ones getting the questions from everyone around them saying, how can we not have an answer to this? And that makes it difficult, right, at times to not have an answer. So that's the beauty of having organizations that are there and actually welcome the development of the canon. What advice would you give to younger listeners, younger professionals, younger students that are interested in pursuing a career in geosynthetic engineering and that also want to develop industry standards as they advance their career? What advice would you give them? I always give an interesting starting point, and that's the fact that Dr. Kerner, he's no longer with us, but before he passed away, he decided to uh, make two-volume set available designing with geosynthetics, and you can find it on Kindle for like three bucks, something expensive for each one. So for under $10, you can have that information. That's a starting point, right? Because I like the electronic things because I can go to the search bar and like somebody asks this question, where do I find that? Boom. And it brings it up. So as a starting point to learn more about geosynthetics, I would say that it is essential. It's also good to go to some of these ASTM meetings. I, you know, We need younger people within ASTM. There are a lot of, as I looked around at the last meeting, I said, you know what? We're all you know, getting a bit older here. We need to start bringing in some young, fresh faces to the party. You know, We talk about geosynthetics, but this is any industry, whether you're in the steel industry or a concrete industry or whatever. If you're interested in material science, it behooves you to at least look at ASTM. And I don't, I'm not sure enough of the younger people did that. I'm sure I would, if Kerner didn't, wasn't such an advocate for his students to be involved with ASTM, I'm not sure that I would have been involved with ASTM, right? I don't know where my path would have gone. But I guess what I'm saying, there's a lot of work opportunities from understanding ASTM and being involved with it. In other words, you develop that knowledge base that other people are not going to have when it comes to materials and how you go about testing materials. And you would say, well, is that just for the material scientists? And I would say, no, it's for, it could be for anybody. If you're a structural engineer, you're going to have uh, beam tables, right? You're going to have, now it's all electronic, right? A lot of times they go design. They don't, a lot of people don't take the structural engineering manuals and open them anymore. It's all electronic. But the point being is it would help them to understand just like the railroad industry understood that they had to have standards and made sure that the rail in Pittsburgh was the same as the rail in California by the time they got there. It wasn't different stuff. Because you imagine, move across, a good example, right? That's a great example, yeah. So it's got to have the same properties, expected properties for the design use of that system. 
So I think anybody in civil engineering would benefit from being involved with ASTM. And there's there's other organizations as well. And I know some universities are starting to realize that it's not such a bad thing to get involved with standards. And maybe when you were going to school too, whether it was the concrete industry, you know, the steel industry has, you can build bridges, right? And the concrete industry has various uh, shows. ACI, for example, they have various shows and all these different things. But yeah, you can also go through ASCE as a young engineer and, and learn a lot by becoming a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers because there's a lot of educational opportunities there. The most important thing is to find a mentor. So just like I had Dr. Kerner, every university has someone that has a passion for something related to a given field. And more universities have realized that geosynthetics, as I said, show up in, in all the disciplines, right? Whether you're an environmental engineer, a structural engineer, or a geotechnical engineer, you're going to come across a geosynthetic of some form. And then you're going to be saying, what we said in the very beginning, what does all this mean? And why do I need all these tests? And what's the most important test? And then it all goes back to what we said, design by function. And interestingly enough, design by function works for everything. What are we using it? What's this supposed to do? We don't usually think of it that way. But in a pure sense, what we're always trying to do is like we said, I want that painting on the wall. Is it going to be this Velcro or that Velcro? Is that going to do the trick? Going back in, in a nutshell, the mentor is very important for young engineers and also understanding of the standards, not just, yeah, I've got the book, to maybe reach out and attend some of these meetings and see what's going on in the industry and get involved. We have so much information on this. I think we forget about the fact that, that although that's fine, you really get tremendous dialogue when you attend meetings and you meet with people and you have the opportunity to express your thoughts and, and learn from other people. And uh, getting involved is, I think, something that doesn't happen right now. So I would like to see younger people get more involved. And you know what the interesting, the other thing I find uh, hard for young professionals is go out and write a paper for a conference. What does it do? It tests your ability of understanding what you did for your project. Because Every one of these conferences has case histories. Almost all of them have some opportunity to write a case history. So what does it do? It gives you exposure. It allows you to meet more people. Maybe you don't have a mentor yet, but you do this paper and somebody comes up to you and says, that was really good stuff. I really like what you're doing. No different than when Kerner came to me and said, you're a good student. Here, look at this. That's where that um, relationship came from. And I, since him, I've had other uh, great people that I view as mentors, whether it's for engineering or business, but having a mentor, uh, somebody to, to help ground you in your decision-making and point you in the direction of things that are going to uh, round out your career and help you enjoy what you're doing. Because I think a lot of times we get frustrated with uh, what we're doing because we just don't know enough about the area that we practice. In. We kind of sometimes put this on and say, okay, I was asked to do this. That's fun for the first couple of years, but you know, after that, there's more. And I, I think any company would be delighted. Like uh, as an employer, I manage engineers, right? Working for Tensar, in essence, I'm managing young professionals and I'm very willing to send them to conferences that, oh, look, if you write a paper and you know, you'll, I'll review it, we'll make sure it's something that, that's worthy to be published and you go and you present that, right? And if you want to attend standards meetings, you come along. You're welcome to come along and sit in. It's hard to develop that interest now because people are kind of stuck in their ways at a young age. With they're like, oh no, I've got everything I need. I'm good. Everything's fine. 
it's good to start that early because that becomes a part of who you are. So that's very important. It does. But, it, and at the same time, like, and you're familiar with Trexel because it's a co-op. I started out and did a lot of different things during my co-op that helped redirect my efforts as to where I was heading. And to go to school and work in the discipline that you're looking at, in the end, you could say, that's not for me. I need to make a change. For example, my wife's a structural engineer. She started out as an electrical engineer. She's like, this is for me. But she learned it from having a co-op. She went out on a co-op. She worked for a company. You can do things in school that's exciting, very interesting, and you're doing all that stuff. But then you actually get into the work environment where you're going to put that stuff to use. And that may not be the thing for you. That may not be your passion. And that's where the mentors come from is to have some sort of work study program. So being a co-op, I think, is part of most universities now, which I think is a phenomenal thing because Drexel was one of the first, I think, that uh, started that sort of program. And it's kind of worked its way into a lot of other universities because they've realized once the kids are actually doing even a co-op, even working over you know a couple of months, they found that these kids developed the direction, found out where they wanted to go, and became employable and enjoyed what they were doing. They stuck with it, you know. So, for a young engineer getting the work, finding the mentor, putting yourself out there in your discipline to help, if anything, put in your mind, I'm doing it to see if this is what I want to do for the next forty years. Look, given the fact that we're living longer, it could be 50 years. This is true. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, I was listening to Deepak Chopra, and he said something interesting that really hit me. He said, their philosophy is the first 25 years of your life are for education, study. The next 25 years of your life are for practice of that study, the practice of the study, the raising of your family. And then the next 25 or longer, God willing, is to give back. And that's where the mentorship comes into the giving back, right? And it could even come into that second portion, but I never thought of it that way. It, it's a nice way to put it. Our lives can be broken up into segments like that. And if we kind of think of it that way, you want those those last two segments to be something that you can, can both enjoy and contribute when it comes to work to work, right? And you hit on some of these, but where can our listeners learn more about the work that you're doing? And then also the standards utilized in a geosynthetic industry. We'll put this in the show notes. So you talked about Kerner's Kindle for like less than $10 for two volumes. What are some other places that people should be looking at? Again, we'll include it in the show notes. People can go right to those links. So they can also go to ASTM.org and to ISO.org. They can also go to tendsar.com as well as any geosynthetic uh, manufacturer. So they could go to Geosynthetic Magazine. They can go to GSI, which is Kerner's Institute. That's great that you'll put it in the show notes. Appreciate that. That's a good point for us to pause. We're going to come back in just a minute and close this around with Dr. Wayne and our Career Factor Safety In segment. But before we do that, we'll hear a quick word for our sponsor for today's episode, that being Collier's Engineering and Design. Thank you to EMI sponsor, Collier's Engineering and Design a full-service A&E firm with more than 2,200 employees in over 60 offices nationwide. As an industry leader, Collier's Engineering and Design has a responsibility to ensure the built environment is constructed with a commitment to the inclusivity, health, and welfare of our people, clients, and communities. Their expansion has fostered an enterprising culture that provides continued opportunities for employees to grow their careers while accelerating their personal and professional development within the company. 
For more information about how you can join their team, find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or visit colliersengineering.com. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Dr. Mark Wayne from Tensar International. Uh, Dr. Wayne, you've already had a very successful career. When you look back on your career, what's something that you implement in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor safety? I think it's a little bit of what I mentioned earlier in the sense that when I was working with uh, Dr. Kerner, I realized that in order for other people to recognize what I'm able to do and what I know, I have to be able to write about it. I have to be able to document my abilities because without that, I mean, we all document our abilities on a resume or some people on CV. I thought for myself, it was very important to publish a document. And that kind of helped me when it came to Drexel. But I think for any engineer, it is very beneficial for them with their employer or whether they're working with co-op or whatever else to, to gain an interest in actually developing a case history or something that can be presented within their industry. And they actually get the chance to um, hone their skills for presentation, right? Because presentation skills, although people say I'm terrible in front of an audience, your number one audience when you get a job is who? You're the person you're trying to get the job from, right? Uh, someone mentioned to me, which it was kind of, and this was after I already had my master's degree, uh, they said, are you a salesman? And I said, uh, no, I don't view myself as a salesman. They said, well, how do you expect to get the job, right? We're all salesmen or saleswomen or salespeople. We're all trying to, to constantly sell ourselves so that the resilience in a job, and there are people that I've worked with, meaning they've worked for me, that I've encouraged to do just that, what I'm saying. And I encourage them. They wrote papers. They presented those papers. They're all in engineering right now in one area or another uh, doing rather well. Why? Because by writing that paper, that's like the first step. And it's difficult, right? Nobody wants to write something. And everybody's like, oh, then I got to go present it. Well, what I suggest before you present it, present it to a small group, present it to your family because they don't know anything about it. So if you can make it easy enough for them, it makes it better. And years ago when I started the presentation, you had to go off for half an hour. Now they're wanting you to do 12 minutes, right? It's 10 to 12 minutes. It's very quick. So if you can get your point across to your family members, then you're easily going to get that point across to a large crowd. And by you speaking and representing yourself, what does that say to other employers? Hey, this is a person I may not, they may not work for me yet, but maybe there's somebody I'm, I would consider because here's the next thing that happens because I, I didn't stay with one company my whole time, right? So as you work for that first company and people get to know you, you develop a list of people that you can go back out to. What do I mean by that? So I worked for Polyfill. It's a geotextile manufacturer. They went out of business in the U.S., you know, they literally came to us on a Wednesday and said, you bet it last paycheck's Friday. And we had just had a baby, you know, and I'm like, what do I do now? Well, what do you do now? You get that piece of paper out and all these people that you talked to or met, now we can stick it in here. Before I had to have scraps of paper or something, right? Or business cards or whatever. You got to make that list and now you got to go sell yourself, right? You got to go back out there and say, 
I'm an engineer. I have these skills. Can I be of help to you? So you need that, right? So this is where we're talking resilience because resilience may not mean that you're in the, with the same company or doing the same thing your whole life. It kind of means building that foundation, which is going to get you through all those years of, of something you hopefully enjoy doing. So you take that and from there, you're able to build upon that. I've experienced it firsthand and it's been very successful. In fact, the way I started working uh, for Tensar was just that. They knew me from Polystel, but they also knew me from industry. They knew me from being at ASTM. They knew me for being at ASCE meetings. I always wanted to go out and be involved at the meetings because if you don't get your name out there, who knows you? You're unknown. You're not unknown. Now we have LinkedIn, but what does LinkedIn tell me? Okay, that's interesting stuff, but where have they presented themselves, presented their ideas, showed me what they could do because we're looking for creative people. Even in the engineering discipline, you would say, oh, engineering is creative as well, right? Because now we have so many resources to draw from to accomplish our work. Now we need to be creative. For example, uh, the guy that I have does CAD work. He's my CAD specialist. Uh, he started using AI to rewrite some of the code within CAD to automatically redraw sections that would take us hours. These are the sort of people you want to work with and uh, be team members with, right? Creative people that are thinking outside the box. Well, you get that from people that are willing to put themselves out there to actually not be afraid to fail, fail fast, learn, and then move forward. That's something we hear more and more today. We didn't used to hear that. In a nutshell, I would encourage anybody going to, it could be engineering or even a trade school. doesn't matter because you can find your way into making presenting material in any one of these forms or fashions to get your ideas out there and let people see what you're doing and have the opportunity, the unique opportunity to hopefully find your future mentor. And from that mentor, one day you will become a mentor to others from the experiences that you picked up throughout this time period. If an engineer follows that formula, that is going to be a successful engineer. Dr. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all these great insights with us. You shared great insights and information. It's going to be helpful for those that are listening. Uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, you have an email you want to share or are you on social media? Yep, I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, mwayne at tensorcorp.com for sure. And you can also find me on LinkedIn as well. All right, thank you so much. That was great. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 80, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at Engineering Management Institute dot org.